Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 546. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We are in a glorious, and we still are in this. <laughs> this is like unprecedented how much good weather we're having at the moment. And I know when I see my friends or friends in, you know, over in America or all around the world, you know, and the, the heat's something that's just unbearable, you know, sick to death of it. We are just mad, you know, like mad Englishmen. Shirts off, knotted handkerchiefs, and we're in there, out there. <laughs> hey, honestly, man, it's just like me hanging baskets. I'm nearly in Chelsea Flower Show standards, man. Just, you know, making sure they're, they're watered every day, you know. <laughs> anyway. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have a story by Elna Gommel, which appeared in New Horizons in 2010, entitled In the Moment. Did you listen? Did you get a chance to listen to the Harlan Ellison Starship Sofa Echoes or Starship Echoes? Yes. What I, Now, if you remember when I, you know, I released all those or I set them all on timer ages ago, I think it was the beginning of the year, and I think that might be the last one. Actually, that's set, so I'll have to do some more, if you're into that. But it, I never knew, you know, we would kind of lose that great writer, Hall and Ellison. So I hope, you you know, if you if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, you know, just listen, you know, to two 
fans really of the guy and you know just trying to bring a little bit of kind of you know a little bit more to what we kind of know of Hall Nelson yeah we all know he was a cantankerous you know grumpy old thing and but some of the works and the fiction that he wrote is just you know it's there for it forever do you know so if you get a chance to listen to it like I say I'd record it you know in probably in January and I might have even had cold did I have cold then or something man flu oh terrible terrible so yes please you know go go and just check that out that would be fantastic now Patreon is standing at four no yes it is four <laughs> Got me to man. Eh? Come on, I know it's early, not that early. Four fourteen. Yes, we were four twelve last week, and I think someone's kind of pushed up their little. You know, got back because we we took a bit of a, a battering on the at the beginning of the month. You know what I mean when we we did that. So there's still a few, there's still a few. Come on, I need to kind of up their details and get it get it sorted out. But a big thank you to Kim Fritz who signed up to Patreon. Kim, thank you so much. Don't forget, Kim, you've got the ad-free Starship Sofa, so you, you need to get that little RSS feed. Came with the email, or now if you log into Patreon, it's on my site there. RSS feed, put that into whatever podcatcher you've got, and you get them now ad-free without, without the adverts, which is a bonus. And just for, just so we kind of keep all things above board, I am recording this on, what is this, Sunday. So I'm recording a little bit earlier just to kind of set it away. Because, no, I'm not, it's not Sunday, I'm on it, what is day today? <laughs> I don't know if I'm batting up, but honestly, my wife just took on me. <laughs> it's Saturday today, it's a Saturday the 7th, yes, because... Tonight, we fly early tomorrow morning. We fly to Montenegro for a week's holiday. So I'm just recording this show there now. So hopefully it goes out on the Wednesday. I set it all up nice and it's all there. And if <clears throat> if you're on Instagram, I will post some pictures on there. Or put, I might even put a video on YouTube of Montenegro as well. So there you go. Anyway, let's see if I can just get through this show. Eh? <laughs> The main fiction today is In the Moment by Ilana Gmel. And it was in New Horizons 2010. Ilana Gmel is an associate professor at the Department of English and American Studies at Tel Aviv University. She is the author of six non-fiction books and numerous articles. As a fiction writer, she has published more than 40 fantasy and science fiction stories in The Singularity, New Realms, Mythic, and many other magazines, and in several anthologies, including People of the Book and Apex Book of World Science Fiction. Her fantasy novel, A Tale of Three Cities, came out in 2013, and there's two more novels scheduled for publish this year. The narrator is Andrea Richardson. Andrea is a British singer and actress with extensive stage and film performances to her name. She began narration and voiceover work in 2014, but enjoys using her existing skills in a different way. You can find her, and there's a link there to Andrea's site and as well as Facebook as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present In the Moment by Ilana Gomel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As a child, Rose liked to sneak out onto the balcony and lift her face toward day. Afterwards, metallic blue shapes swam in her eyes. She asked her mother if they were fishes, like the ones bred in the building's aquariums. Her mother shrugged. She tried to talk about the day fish to her elder brother, Reggie, even though she knew it was useless. Eventually, she relegated them to a special place in her mind, which she inhabited alone. There was no room there for her mother's tired, lined face, and for Reggie's jerky motions as he sat in his corner, stacking up his old wooden blocks. The blocks had lost their original colour long ago, and were now of soft, uniform grey, the same shade as the landing's walls. Reggie would stack them up, contemplate the resulting tower, and then destroy it with a single blow of his pudgy hand. Reggie turned a night flyer when Rose was thirteen. She did not think he had it in him. Reggie never spoke, though he had learned the basic survival skills, such as turning on the light in the bathroom and closing the faucet to prevent the leakage of water. He was like his blocks, monotonous, predictable, and passive. But one day... When Rose had ridden the elevator up from Miss Peabody's cramped twilight apartment, where the youngsters of the building crowded for their regular dose of reading, writing and reckoning, she found Reggie gone. His corner was empty, a smudge on the wall standing out starkly where his head had rested. In the kitchen, two open lunch boxes with sliced cucumbers sat on the cracked counter. Outside on the balcony, the drooping vegetable garden sweltered in the glare of day. Rose could see the broken stems and scuff marks on the railing. She touched the rusty metal where her brother had gone over the edge of the world. The infinite buildings of the city curved around her in a hollow cylinder 500 metres across. The balcony-studded walls soared into the pitiless fire of day that shone above her head, unchanged and indifferent, as it had done for generations. And below her, the walls dropped into the dusk, congealing into the empty pupil of night. The twilight apartments marked the lower limit of human habitation on the boundary between the soft glow and the blunt darkness. 
Unable to sustain agriculture, their balconies were piled with the mysterious junk food found throughout the city. On the periphery of her vision, a dark-road pilgrim crawled slowly down the fire escape, his, or maybe her, gloved fingers glued to the creaky beams. In many places the ladders had come away from the corroded walls, supported only by a thin strut. A watchman, tottering on the jury-rigged catwalk that encircled the city, stared disdainfully at the pilgrim, made a sign as if pushing away something unsavoury. The pilgrims, just one step above the night-flyers, were feared and despised for their willingness to die. Rose felt an overpowering tug of loneliness. The balcony below hers contained only a tangle of desiccated stems. The apartment was empty, its furniture plundered by the neighbours after the owners had disappeared into night. Their cockroach cage, painstakingly woven from salvaged wires, hung open. She rushed out onto the landing and kept her finger on the button of the elevator until she heard the rumble of its ascent and then the clanking when the door of its cage slid open. Inside were the familiar grey walls and the bank of buttons numbered 1 to 45, the magic number of the human life zone. Her mother was working on the 23rd at the fish farm. The walls of the apartment had been ripped out and the entire floor space stacked with glass boxes, in which swam fat-bellied guppies with slack, mocking lips, black-and-white striped panaks, and mustachioed catfish mincing on the muddy floor. Mother was in the bathroom, carefully rinsing a precious bowl. The bowl shattered on the tiled floor when Rose walked in. She tried to tell Mother that it would be easier for the two of them to survive, now that they had no useless mouth to feed, but she could not find the words. Several sleep periods later, Mother sneaked out of her bedroom, and having left the lunchbox and I love you scribbled on the kitchen counter, vaulted over the balcony's railing. There were not many orphans in the city. When a parent turned night flyer, he or she often took the children as well. But here was Rose, the last of her family, stubbornly clinging to life, even though she had to endure the superstitious dread of her neighbours, the greed of the aldermen, and the privation of a twilight orphanage. In the orphanage, crushed by unwashed bodies and grimly tended by tight-lipped women, she thought often of Reggie. Not of her father, who had succumbed to the pull of night before she was born, nor of her mother, who had chosen to follow her firstborn, but of her silent brother, whose eyes had often tracked her as he sat in his corner. What wonders was he witnessing on his infinite journey? And would he ever forgive her for wishing him out of the way? By the age of eighteen, Rose grew up into a pudgy, red-haired, morose girl who rebuffed infrequent friendly overtures and even less frequent attempts at wooing. At least she did, until she met Xander. It was at a get-together for young people. Theoretically, all unmarried persons had to attend. Practically, the alderman's children had their own decadent parties somewhere in the day apartments. The rumours flying dayward and nightward insinuated that the alderman had some mysterious means of moving from one building to another without risking the catwalk, perhaps with the help of the mythical red elevator that was supposed to be able to go beyond the 45 human floors. But Rose believed in the red elevator as little as she did in love. She was sitting in the corner alone, rolling the last piece of a delicious baked pumpkin on her tongue, when a boy plunked down on the shaky settee by her side. Rose glanced at him askance, and was surprised to see an unfamiliar face. He must be from another building. The boy did not look very impressive. Reedy, 
with an apologetic smile and large, clumsy hands. However, he had a nice voice. His name was Sander, and he was indeed from the third building on the left from Rose's birthplace. He lived with his father on 15th and was now visiting his cousins. Even though he did not say so directly, she guessed that he was sent out to scout for a bride. She was not even in the running. A family like his would look for a girl with a diary. A chair, a table, perhaps even a bundle of precious and irreplaceable clothes, while her family's entire stock of possessions had been given into the temporary keeping of the alderman, and she had no hope of ever seeing it again. Nevertheless, despite her blunt admission of her penury, Sander did not leave her side. At some point, he suggested they go out onto the balcony. Standing there, he lifted his face into the brassy light of day. "'You know,' he said, "'when I look out into day for a long time, "'I think I see moving shadows. "'Do you think there are creatures living there?' "'That was the moment Rose fell in love. "'When Sander proposed, Rose could hardly believe her ears. "'She had schooled herself not to seek happiness, "'but only survival.' After a kiss that was simultaneously intoxicating and vaguely disappointing, she tried to steer the conversation back to practical matters. "'Tell me about your family,' she said. "'Are we going to live with your father?' Sander shook his head. "'No, no. Our alderman already promised me a new apartment when I get married. They wanted me to,' he added with a wink. "'They knew I'd bring back somebody special.' Rose blushed, which she knew did not suit her complexion. "'What's your building like?' Sander shrugged. "'All buildings are the same.' "'Why?' Rose blurted out. "'What do you mean?' "'I mean, didn't you ever wonder what lies beyond the kitchen?' "'Beyond?' Sander frowned, trying to visualise an abstraction. "'Or what if we could open the second bathroom door?' Rose continued, emboldened by a flush of desire. "'What an imagination you have!' Sander was shaking his head. She hoped in admiration. Now I know why I fell in love with you. There was something faintly offensive in this statement, but she had no time to think what it was, because he kissed her again. And this time, she suddenly felt what the other girls in the orphanage had been raving about when they sneaked back from dates. Weddings in the city used to be grand celebrations, with several aldermen presiding over a crowd of guests squeezed into the new couple's assigned apartment. But recently, with the increase in night flying, the mood in the city had turned brittle and sour. The aldermen clung to their precious vegetable gardens and avoided going nightward. Rose did not mind. She wanted an inconspicuous ceremony. Her orphanage mates unexpectedly organised a bridal shower for her. She boarded the elevator laden with gifts, an all-purpose box made of recycled chairwood, a T-shirt let out at the seams, and a rusty key of a wrong shape and size to fit an apartment door one of the inexplicable odds and ends salvaged from twilight. All of this sudden goodwill made her feel self-conscious, and she was glad when the elevator reached the 45th floor, where the alderman who had robbed her of her family's inheritance performed a brief ceremony, fidgeting under her unflinching stare. Sander, now her husband, called the elevator that was to take them down to the middle floor with an access to the catwalk. From there, they would embark on their journey to Sander's building. He seemed jittery. It surprised Rose, just as her own calm did. Sander jiggled the button. The growl of the elevator came up the shaft from way down below, somewhere on a twilight floor. The moment seemed to stretch infinitely. 
Finally, the cage door slid open. Xander pushed her in. The pile of gifts she was holding fell apart and scattered on the floor. Rose bent to retrieve them as the elevator rumbled into motion, and she lost her balance and crouched stupidly on all fours, dizzy with a sense of monumental wrongness. The elevator was rising. It could not rise. No elevator went beyond the 45th floor. But Rose's body, trained from the earliest childhood to know instinctively how far dayward or nightward it was moving, was telling her loud and clear that it was. She was so stunned that she remained in her undignified position while her eyes slowly took in the impossible colour that filled her field of vision. Expecting the muddy brown of the elevator floor, they were blinded by bright scarlet. Slowly, she got up, still clutching the gift key, the only solid and reassuring object in this dream. She drew her hand down the plush scarlet wall. In front of her was a bank of buttons. The buttons were arranged in two columns, as in all city elevators, and numbered in the same way. But underneath them, and slightly to the right, was a fat red button. The symbol on it looked like an eight lying on its side. She remembered she was not alone. She turned and faced Sander, who stood in the corner like an ungainly rag doll. Yes, he said. It is the red elevator. Rose kept her eyes on him. I couldn't very well tell you, could I? He whined. Would you have believed me? Well, anyway, here we are. We're married, you know. Rose felt the improbable miracle of love shrivel into nothing and was almost glad to let it go. Where is it taking us? she asked. The elevator kept climbing. You'll see, soon. But it was not soon. At least, she did not think so. In the city, time was measured by sleep cycles announced by the watchman, by the slow ripening of plants, by the growth of babies and the death of the old. But here, in the elevator rising into infinity, with no familiar markers of duration, she suddenly knew with absolute certainty that time had stopped and it terrified her more than Sander's betrayal. The elevator clanked to a stop, and pushing Sander aside, she rushed out into the landing. Except it was no landing. It was a room. And this distortion of the familiar laws of space made Rosie's head spin, so she swayed like a drunkard. The room was big, as if several partitions had been knocked down. There was no furniture, no windows or doors, apart from the elevator. What was there? A bright line streaked the far wall. Rose rushed forward and tugged away a heavy curtain. Sander gave an outraged squeal. You stupid idiot! he cried. We could have had some time together! Brightness as pitiless as a blow made Rose squeeze her eyes shut for a moment. But then she opened them stubbornly and, wiping away tears, stared into the gulf beyond the window, slowly accepting that the light was not uniform. The light was the one fixed and unalterable aspect of the city. Everything else occasionally changed. Catwalks were strung up and fell, balconies burgeoned with new shoots in planters or gaped bare in seasons of famine. The cladding peeled off, revealing the rough concrete underneath. But these trifling changes were always bracketed by the glare of day above, the darkness of night below. Each altitude had its unique illumination. From the golden flood of noon, through the brassy tinge of afternoon, into the crepuscular lilac of twilight and the dull darkness of night. But here, the luminosity outside was streaked and marred with moving shadows. In the pool of day, giant silhouettes were circling, dipping and diving. Their V-shaped bodies, 
cut the light, and it fell down in broken slivers. Dayfish, Rose whispered, awed. Move away, Sander cried. Draw the curtain. They may not have seen us yet. But they had. One of the winged creatures above canted and sheared, falling through the brightness, and hovered in front of the glass. A blunt, blind head, curving into a meaty hook, nudged the window. Sander grabbed her shoulder and pushed her onto the floor. Pretend you're dead. They don't eat carrion. Rose found herself with her face in the musty carpet. Sander scrambled to the window and pulled down the curtain. They lay side by side in the stuffy murk. Are they really dayfish? Rose asked after a while. Yes. Well, we call them daymasters, replied Sander. And you're their pet? I was a night flyer, he said. I was just seven. My mum decided she couldn't go without me, you see, but they saved me, plucked me out of the air, brought me here. Where's here? Upper floors, above the 45th. Humans can't go here, and they don't often go down below. Why not? I don't know. Afraid of night, I think. Anyway, there are several of us here, mostly young night flyers like me. They treat us well. We've got plenty of food. And in exchange? Rose could see his eyes now, as flat as buttons. You know, don't you? Zander said. We have to bring them people. We go down on the red elevator and, well, bring people up here with us. What do they do with us? What do we do with our fish? For a heartbeat, Rose was still. And then she rushed to the elevator's door and jabbed the big concave button. You can't do it, Sander said calmly. They do something to us so we can ride the red elevator. Nobody else. But listen, I can make a deal with them. Really? I was thinking about it. I mean, you're my wife. I, I can talk to them, sort of. You can stay with us. Be here. Be one of us. Rose's fingernail broke as she continued to stab the button. It's a good life, Zander insisted. And in exchange, she whispered. I do it. So can you. We survive. Rose felt his tentative touch on her breast. Turning around, she closed her fist around the gift key and drove it into Zander's stomach. He doubled over clasping his hands over a spreading stain on his shirt, and Rose ran back to the window and tore at the curtain. The dayfish were still swimming in the hot glare outside, and Rose's action attracted one of them. The furrowed dome of a giant head butted the glass, pale, corrugated skin squashed into a neat circle. There were no eyes, but she felt the dayfish was looking straight at her. The toothless, beak-like jaws clacked open, revealing the blood-flush lining. The window exploded inwards and she was showered with glass fragments. Rose flattened herself against the wall. The room went dark again as the creature pressed its bulk against the empty window frame. It was too big to get in, she saw with a thrill of hope. Perhaps it would frighten Xander into calling up the red elevator. The creature unfolded a slender segmented limb and reached into the room. A bony clawed hand groped amongst the glass on the floor, grazed Rose's sweatshirt and grabbed. The old worn fabric ripped and she was free. She threw herself onto the floor, rolled, saw the giant fingers dig into Sander's forearm as he was dragged, kicking and screaming towards the window, leaving a bright streak of blood on the dingy carpet. The beak jaws stretched wide, and Zander slid into the stinking moor. The skeletal arm snaked back into the room. 
Rose leapt to her feet, ran to the window, squeezed past the hovering body, and jumped. So I became a night flyer after all. This was her first coherent thought. It sneaked in past a jumble of wordless impressions, the hot, blinding glare, the intoxicating feeling of lightness, and the constant susurrus of the wind against her falling body. She flexed her arms and legs and tried to grasp the air. Fear came and went. She thought of her family and imagined herself chasing them forever. The idea repelled her. She wanted an end. She realised this with a sudden astonishing clarity. No matter what the end would be, she wanted it. This is why she had followed Xander, whose flat, dead eyes had been there all along. This is why she had jumped. Had Reggie wanted an end too? An end to his pointless, monotonous survival? Had he jumped in search of time? The dayfish had not tried to pluck her from the air. Why not? Rose discovered she was still clutching the gift key and carefully tucked it into her pocket. She was falling through the tube of the city like a drop of water through a pipe. Endless, identical sash windows stared emptily at her. Endless, bare balconies grinned toothlessly as she floated by. Endless fire escapes clung to the grey walls like barren vines. But there were no faces in the windows. The balconies were bare of vegetation, and the ladders rust undisturbed by any pilgrim's progress. She was far above the human zone. The light had softened a little, but it was still too bright. Rose closed her aching eyes, and then she fell asleep, sweetly and soundly, splayed in mid-air. Rose woke up because she was cold. She was shivering in her torn sweatshirt. The air rushing past her cut like a knife. She was in deep twilight, so deep that it was almost night. Some light still bled from the distant circle of day above, but all it showed were the same empty balconies and blind windows. Rose cursed. She must have slept throughout the plunge through the human zone. How stupid of her! Somebody might have seen her as she flew by, might have waved farewell. But then she remembered there was nobody whose farewell she wanted. Her family was gone, and her husband had never existed. She curled up into a tight ball, trying to keep warm. Below her spread the unrelieved darkness of night. Except that it was not unrelieved. The black eye of the city tube was speckled with golden sparkles. A giant net, beaded with quick-moving lights, expanded to meet her, tough strands giving and then bouncing back. She had the wind knocked out of her, and was entangled in cold and dripping cables that twitched, as if made of raw muscles. Rose glimpsed something unutterably strange, like an enormous light bulb with a human face. And then she passed out. Rose opened her eyes and saw Reggie. "'Hello, sis!' he said. His voice was a little rusty and a little squeaky. This was the voice old Reggie would have had if he'd ever been able to speak, which he had not. But it seemed to her quite natural to be greeted by him. "'Are we dead?' she asked. "'No.' "'Dying,' Reggie replied. The cables were digging into her bruised back. She sat up and saw what Reggie's face was attached to. In the city, some people bred cockroaches to supplement the scant diet of vegetables and aquarium fish. The hard wings and segmented thorax of the creature in front of her reminded her of the cockroaches she had seen. But it stood upright on the long, stilt-like pair of hind legs, while its upper appendages were small and jagged and twitching. 
the thorax flowed into a lumpy head with a shock of red hair and Reggie's face. The entire thing was the colour of pasty human flesh dusted with freckles on the lower segments. It shed a pale silvery radiance. Rose reached out and touched the thorax. It was warm and yielding. Reggie, somehow she did not doubt it was him, smiled bashfully. She had never touched him when they were kids, even though their mother had sometimes asked her to give her brother a hug, but she'd always refused. How long have you been like this? she asked. I don't know. He sounded surprised. Does it matter? She did not know why, but she felt it did. Come on, said Reggie, one of his twitching appendages touching her cheek lightly. You can't stay on the net. She doesn't like it. I told her to leave you alone. She? The tough greyish-pink strands beneath her, each as thick as her forearm, were contracting and relaxing in a complex symphony of movements. The strands' intersections were marked by round knobs that looked familiar. She squinted. They were human heads, encased in transparent tegument. The nearest head that belonged to a middle-aged man blinked sluggishly and returned her stare. The net takes the old and the feeble, Reggie said, nodding at the heads. And it changes us, the young, I mean. Gives us wings so we can hunt in twilight. You'd be surprised what lives down here. Mum? Rose asked. Dad? Reggie turned away and hopped dexterously across the strands toward a balcony. Rose followed. The net beat under her feet like a heart. She vaulted across the balcony's railings and followed Reggie into the apartment. It was the same as any other apartment, except the furniture seemed relatively new, not scuffed and worn by generations of use. She thought it was a waste. Her brother in his present condition did not need a bed to sleep in or a dining table to sit at. Indeed, he dropped onto his belly, craning his lumpy neck to look up at her. In the corner, there was a small pile of objects. She picked up a grey wooden block. Yeah, said Reggie, shamefacedly. I still like them. And there are enough of them. See, in the 45 they have moved things around from one apartment to another. The alderman hoards stuff. But here it all remains where it's supposed to be. If I drop my blocks nightward, I can just go to the next building and get them. Rose shook her head. It made no sense to her. How come you can speak? she asked. The net fixed me, said Reggie. So, Rose said dully, some night flyers are hunted by the day fish and some end up in the net. And when she gets hungry, do you help her out like those day fishers do? Reggie did not answer. Are you hungry? he asked after a while. Rose realised she was ravenous. She'd not eaten anything since her wedding breakfast, and it had happened to another person in another lifetime. But she shook her head. No, Reggie said sadly, it's not what you think. I told you, we hunt. Only, can you cook? There's gas here? And electricity? Of course. I told you, we're still in the city. Only there is no city. Not really, just this one building. The creature he put on the kitchen table looked like a miniature version of the day fish that had killed Sander, with a sinuous naked body and an eyeless head coming to a point. Perhaps they breed here, she thought, in the depth of night and only then climb up into day. But she had no compunctions skinning the creature like a mudfish and putting it into a familiar aluminium pot to boil on the familiar gas stove. There were no vegetables to go with it, but the salt cellar was full. Haven't you learned how to cook? she asked, and then realised Reggie's feeble upper appendages could not handle such tasks. "'What do you mean there's just one building?' she asked quickly, trying to fill in the awkward pause. 
This is what the net told me. There was just one building, 45 floors. The rest, the city, they're just like mirror reflections. But people live in all the buildings, exclaimed Rose. Yes, but see, day and night were once movable, said Reggie. They changed places, so half the time the world was light and half dark. Rose tried to imagine day and night sliding like giant elevators along the shaft of the city. And then there was something like a great fight or maybe a giant explosion, you know, like a gas leak that blows up sometimes, only this was much worse. The building, our building, was destroyed. What are you talking about? Rose cried irritably. It's still standing. We're in it, aren't we? No, said Reggie. We're in the last moment of its existence, just before the final annihilation. This moment is the city. They ate the cooked dayfish in silence. Rose cut the chewy meat into bite-sized portions and fed her brother with a fork. He looked profoundly touched. In the past, their mother had done such menial tasks for her disabled son. Rose had refused. So what are the dayfish and the net? she asked. Did they also live in that, that original building? No, I don't think so. I think they've evolved here, replied Reggie, just as humans have evolved and adapted. The fish we eat, the original tenants had kept fish in aquariums just for fun. They had so much food, they threw it away on useless pets. But how can it be? Rose cried impatiently. How could one building wrap around itself and become an infinite city? How could time just drag on and on and never come to an end? Maybe, Reggie said, because they did not want it to end. Rose thought about her childhood in the orphanage, the succession of grim, monotonous days, keeping her head down, doing the alderman's bidding for fear of losing the precious moment of survival. She thought of Sander, fishing for men to feed his masters. She thought of Reggie, adapting to the net that had killed their parents. What is outside the city? she asked. Death, I think, he said, but he did not sound sure. What will happen to me? But she already knew the answer. Reggie's tough cockroach wings clicked in excitement. The net will fix you, he cried. I can talk to her, sort of, but she'll do it, I know, and you'll be one of us. A day monster or a night monster, she wanted to say. That's my choice. Not much of a choice, is it? but blood is thicker than water, and Reggie's my brother. I love him. I loved Sander. He loved me, and he was ready to feed me to a monster. Listen, she said, I'd like to take a shower. Is it working? She knew there was no need to ask. Every apartment had the same amenities, the same furniture, the same clothes and knick-knacks it had in the moment before its destruction, the moment of infinite duration that would never end, until somebody put an end to it. The water was hot and the towels exactly the same as they had been in their family apartment. Some alderman was now using them, or their infinitely multiplied reflections. Drying herself off, Rose stood with her back to the mirror, not wanting to see the human body that might not be hers for long. Her eyes fell on the second door. Every bathroom had one, but it was locked, inaccessible, believed to lead nowhere. After a while, one stopped seeing it, it was as familiar and worn out as everything else in the city, dissolved into invisibility by the endless routine of survival. Rose stood still and looked at the closed door. Her clothes were thrown in a heap on the floor. She rummaged in the pocket of her jeans and found the key she had used to wound Xander.
It was spotted with his blood. She pushed it into the keyhole and turned. There you go. Big thank you to Elana. Elana, thank you so much. Don't forget, copyright is Elana and Andrea. What can I say? Ladies, thank you so much indeed. So that is 546 Put to Bed. And again, if you can support us, that would be fantastic on Patreon. You would be doing us a great service. So now I'm going to go and find my... Yes, I got... I got some Vivian Westwood, no doubt, sliders for my holidays. And my sons went and cobbled them. Well, he's the way you know, you, you too, or you kind of pull them off, as the wife's saying. So, yes, I've got a pair of, I've got some fancy van ones. Mind you, I just love sliders. I'm a sliders. I've got a collection of them now, and the top of the tree was going to be me Vivian Westwood ones. But, oh, they were like, man, just gel, just, just like smothered in love and comfort. Would Oh, they're nice, Dad. Hey, hey, Mum, Mum, can, can I have them? Until next week, look after yourselves. Good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Time soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here. I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I wanna talk to you I wanna talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.